Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scrubber, and together with Bruce, as you well know, we have written 36 cookbooks under our own steam. We're turning in another right as we speak. Due out this November, our latest cookbook is the Instant Air Fryer Bible. And by the way, if you want to know more about air frying, we are teaching a class with Milk Street at the end of May on air frying, and kind of a finessing class, not a basic intro right. to air frying, but much more of an up finessing class of in of air frying. And you can find information about that at our website, bruceandmark.com, and lots of other things. Right, and lots of other things. But we're not talking about air frying in this episode of the podcast. We want to talk about food traditions, the importance of food traditions. We have our one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview with Kwok Lin Wan, the author of One Walk, One Pot. And we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Food traditions are really important to most people. I mean, whether it's a a thing that you mark a certain event or a certain situation or you do it all the time. I know I look forward to them, and they're really important to us as a culture. Right. I do a lot of things besides writing cookbooks with Bruce. Um, I teach literary seminars across all kinds of places. Um, uh, They're located in New England, but they've all gone virtual, so now they're kind of weirdly global. And I, 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 this last fall, taught eight weeks on the Japanese-English novelist Katsuo Ishiguro. And we were at the same time writing a cookbook, and I was... Was leading a dis- book discussion groups on Henry James, and I was leading book discussion groups on other things, all this kind of crazy virtual literary teaching that I do. And at the end of all of these things, this is the whole point of this story, is I often plan a dinner party because when I finish everything, I just want to take a day in which I get to spend in the kitchen creating a dinner party. And you probably, if you listen to this podcast, you've probably already heard this. I made this really wild proto-Iranian dinner. So anyway, the point was that I, and I was very creative. I pulled recipes apart and re-put them together in very deconstructed ways. It was all a lot of fun for me. And that is one of my food traditions is that I spend... You know, a couple days making some grandiose meal for friends after I finish a huge set of work projects. I love that your traditions are mostly cooking for friends because there's another one that happens around here. I sing with a Baroque group. So after the concerts, Mark always cooks dinner for all of our friends who come to the concerts. And usually it's like four pots of chili or four lasagnas. And it's really a nice tradition. I I so look forward to that. Instant pot chili. And it's I can make a vegetarian version, a chicken version, a you know, a beef version, a traditional pork version. I mean I can make various kinds of chilies. And so I, I uh, I can just get all that out on the counter with all the toppings, and it's very easy for me to put that together for the dinner. That is a food tradition for us, too. But there are also food traditions, as you well know, that are part of your cultural heritage mm. and your past that are idiosyncratic <laughs> to you. And Bruce has one that I just cannot understand. Mm. It's called noodle kugel. Gross. And you've even heard Gross. me talk about this in the podcast. Gross. My grandmother would serve it as a side dish. Oh. I know a lot of people have it as dessert, but my grandmother served it as a side uh, dish. She 
she didn't put cheese in it, no cottage cheese. Oh, it was basically it's noodles, worse. noodles with eggs and oil and sugar and camp fruit cocktail. Oh. And she'd bake it and serve it like alongside a brisket oh. or sweet and sour meatballs. Oh, sweet and sour with no sour. <laughs> Just sweet meatballs. There's no and sour in there. When we were at Mark's family's in Missouri for Christmas, we went to a kosher deli one day. And Mark and I treated everyone over Christmas to a big kosher deli spread. And I got eight giant hunks of noodle kugel to put out with the brisket and, and salami. And guess how many Gentiles ate it? None. <laughs> I ate them all, and I gained 15 pounds on that trip to Christmas. So there you go. I love that we had Christmas with noodle kugel, mm. which is very funny to me. And also that basically everybody was like, what is this? They, did, they wouldn't even do rugelach either. I don't know what's wrong with these Well, people. no, I did eat rugelach. But no, noodle kugel is just one of those things that, you know, you know how this is. You grew up with something and it's really, really centered to you and your traditions. And it's part of a fine childhood memory. And it becomes something that's really uh, crucial to you. I, I, I'll give you an example for me. Um, I have absolutely no problem eating innards. And that's mm. because I grew up with grandparents on a farm and I was their only grandchild. These were German immigrant grandparents. And I was their only grandchild, much less being a grandson. So, of course, for the grandchild, these are the old days, for the grandchild, if you kill a chicken and you cook a chicken, you don't feed the grandchild the breast or the legs or the thighs. No, no, no. That's what you eat. You feed your prized the grandchild. Head. No, the liver, <laughs> the heart, the gizzards, the innards. And I actually, and this is what's so funny, I actually thought I was special because I ate innards. Well, it is the most nutritious part. Look, that's the part of the chicken that the raccoon's going to go after if it, it kills exactly. it. So. And I grew up... Oh, here we go. I grew up eating brains. <laughs> I thought that this was all normal, and I thought people who ate them were spe- <laughs> were special. And I didn't know that people grossed out at these things. It never occurred to me. I For my third grade birthday party, third grade, I asked my mother to make a tongue. And she's like, I am not making a tongue <laughs> well, for you third wanted, graders. You want a tongue followed by orange cake. <laughs> I did. I wanted orange layer cake, but I wanted to start with tongue sandwiches. And my mother's like, I am not making tongue for your third grade friends who come over. That's just not going to happen. Well, there are food traditions all over the world that some people find delicious and other people are going to find actually gross and it's so important, these food mm. traditions, that UNESCO from the UN labels these gastronomic traditions as something to be celebrated and safeguarded. And in fact, we talked a few weeks ago in the podcast about UNESCO's adding um, baguettes to their list and how important baguettes are. But we found a few other things that are on there that I think sound really delicious, but you might not. Well, uh, yeah, maybe. One that UNESCO recognizes is a Jordanian dish that is apparently absolutely central to mm-hmm. Jordanian c- food culture, mensef. And mensef is made with sheep or goat. And don't think lamb. Think sheep. Mm-hmm. Lar- and large, oh. bony, bony pieces. And right. we're talking about not, yeah, Mark says, not don't think lamb. Not sweet little no. baby lamb. Mutton. Yeah, an right. old stinky goat, and they're boiled with lots of spices in a yogurt mm. sauce, mm. and it's served with rice, sometimes bulgur, um, over a layer of thin bread. It just sounds to me so 
delicious. We, I would love to. We eat were that. on a when Bruce and I used to teach cooking classes on a Holland America cruise ships. We always had this thing that we would go to various ports, and uh, Bruce would hire a local guy. We never did any of the ships tours. Bruce would find through internet connections, through Facebook, etc., local guides. And so we went to the island of Dominica in the Caribbean, which actually I will admit to you that I didn't even know existed. So there you go. That's how embarrassing I am. Not so, the Dominican Republic. No, this no. Is the island of Dominica. D- Dominica. I, I think it's actually since been destroyed by a hurricane. It but. was. It just about was wiped out by a hurricane. Yeah. But anyway, we went to Dominica, and Bruce hired a local guide, and he took us all around. He took us to a cinnamon plantation. It was all it's much fun. And uh, along the way, we were talking about food. He found out we were cookbook writers, and yada, yada. We were talking about food, and he said that their Easter tradition in traditional families was to get a ram, a goat ram, and not a not young, a young baby, sweet, tender goat. No, get a ram. Stinky. And basically, they kill it in the river. So he said so much that the river actually ran red with blood. And then uh, the in the that comes out of the town, and then they cook it, and they look for the stinkiest, smelliest male. Um, <laughs> And that's what the meat's going to taste like, trust exactly. me. Exactly. Because he said that it, you know, it was vitality, virility, all those things, you know what they mean. That, right, it, that, that that indicated that for Easter, you were kind of entering your new life, your new phase of life. And they were looking for this really stinky goat. And uh, I, I, we had just written a goat cookbook. And of course, we used all young, tender, baby goat, which is delicious. But I kept thinking to myself, wow, I wonder if I could stand this. But of course, to this guy, in Dominica, this was like a, a heavily felt family tradition, a cultural tradition to eat this goat. And I may be turning up my nose at it. I don't know. I try it. My hunch is it was super, super hot. My ch- hunch is that it was spicy beyond belief. But I don't know. I try it. But it, it is localized to a food tradition. It is. There's another food tradition from Haiti that sounds to me so delicious. And if you go to go on YouTube, there are hundreds of people making this jumu soup, a traditional Haitian pumpkin soup. Mm. It's made with vegetables and plantains, with meat, with pasta, with spices. Whoa, 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 whoa wait, wait, wait. Pumpkin, plantains, and pasta. This mm-hmm. this is uh, you're gonna go plow the back forty <laughs> after you may, after you eat this well, thing. Holy crap! I mean, it's a celebratory dish, right? And it is deeply rooted in Haitian identity. I mean, originally this was reserved for slave owners, right? Um, and then mm. when Haiti got its independence from France, Haitians took ownership of what was this sort of privilege soup and it became this national identity it sounds like heavy you, you need to be in the dead of winter i don't think they have the dead i was about to say when is the dead of winter in haiti yeah i don't think they have the dead of winter the way we do in new england because it sounds like something that i would eat in the dead of winter to you know put on my winter fat so that i could uh survive the cold in new england that it i would like to try it i bet it's hot oh i hope it's hot i hope that mansaf is also hot I hope they put a lot of chilies in there with that strong uh, goat. It could be, you know, we were, well, oh, this is completely off the subject, but we were we we're watching the latest season of Fauda, the Israeli show, which means chaos, and uh, Fauda. And it's it's really horrifically graphic and lots of violence and Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the whole bit. And there's a, there's a moment where we are where one of the Israelis is pretending to be an Arab and helping this woman 
don't know. I don't know. He's helping her. He may be leading her down a dangerous path. <laughs> but anyway, he's pretending to be Arabic, and um, they're on a trip into Lebanon, and she doesn't eat spicy food. Clearly, this is this long way around. So she, they stop at a local restaurant. She tastes the food. She coughs. He says, oh, you can't eat spicy, he says to her in Arabic. You're a disgrace to your ancestors. <laughs> and I have to tell you that that really took me aback because I thought, is that a thing like like in uh, Jordanian or Palestinian cooking is being really hot, searingly hot food a well, thing? Well, think about Aleppo peppers, right? I guess I mean, so, right? Because I don't think of it because I think of, you know, the gentle meze platters that I get at some Middle Eastern restaurant. Which well, that's are, also for an American audience. Exactly. Yeah. I think it must be for an American yeah, audience. Yeah, I think, I think chilies, look, it's desert culture, and I think chilies are always always present in hot desert culture. Probably so. We're speaking a little bit out of our depth here, and we probably should just stop and not get too far (laughs) out of our own depth. So if you have any food traditions that you would like to share with us, we would love to see Mm -hmm. that. Go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. You can share your food traditions there. You can weigh in on noodle kugel or fried chicken gizzards or anything like that. And did you know that we have a newsletter? We do indeed have a newsletter. It comes out once every week, sometimes once every other week. You can sign up for that newsletter by going to our website, bruceandmark.com. There's a sign-up form for the newsletter there. And let me say in advance, we guarantee 100%, no questions asked, your email will never be sold or used for any other purposes. In fact, I use a program that once I put your email into the system for our newsletter, I can't even see it anymore. So it's hidden from me. And in that newsletter, you will get usually a free recipe, sometimes even a knitting pattern. Because if you don't know, I am a big knitter. And you can see all my patterns at my website at BruceWeinstein.net. But yes, please go to BruceAndMark.com and sign up for our newsletter. Okay, up next, our one-minute cooking tip. It's about how to make the perfect ramen egg, which was a piece of our newsletter recently. The way you make a perfect ramen egg is to boil it for six minutes, and that is right from the refrigerator, and six minutes when it hits the water. But the Wait, most water imp- is already boiling. The water is already boiling. But the most important thing, the egg should not touch the bottom of the pot. That's the So pot. you got to put a steamer rack or something on the bottom of the pot to lift you know the those, eggs off the bottom. vegetable steamers that look like lotus that open up. Um, we actually use the silicon rack that goes in an instant yep. pot and put it in a saucepan. You can buy fancy egg uh, cookers that lower the yep. eggs into the pot. But the most important thing is the egg must not touch the bottom of the saucepan. But sauce we're not pan. steaming the egg. It is being no. boiled. So even if no. you put it in a steamer basket, that steamer basket is submerged in the pot of boiling water. Eggs in their shell. Yeah. And yeah. then then you pull, <laughs> take it out. Well, I mean, come on. In six and minutes. In six minutes, you take it out, put it in a bath of ice water, a bowl yeah, full of cold ice water. cold water, just for about two minutes to stop the cooking peel it and when you break open that just set white you are going to have this gelatinous slightly runny yolk that is delicious perfect egg for ramen for even for soups i even like it just on toast with some avocado or some smoked salmon so that's how you make the perfect egg that is Up next, Bruce's interview with Kwok Lin Wan, the author of One Walk, One Pot. They're going to be talking, apparently, all about Asian comfort foods. Today, I'm excited to speak with Kwok Lin Wan. He grew up in the kitchen of his family's Chinese Cantonese restaurant in Leicester, which is in the UK for those of you in the US and aren't familiar with that part of the world. And of course, 
He grew up to be a chef. And now between magazines and newspapers, radio shows and TV appearances, there's probably no one in the UK who doesn't know who he is. And his cookbooks, including the runaway smash hit, The Complete Chinese Takeaway Book, and his upcoming One Walk, One Pot, Kwok Lin Wan is gaining an international reputation for his Chinese cuisine. And for our listeners in the rest of the world, you need to check out his work and his website. And welcome, Kwok Lin. Thank you so much. What a great intro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're so much fun to watch cooking. You make cooking enjoyable you make it seem like it's a lot of fun even when we know sometimes it's a lot of work um but mostly you make food that looks so delicious yeah i I think it's so important that we cook the food that we really want to eat um i'm a big carbohydrate i love my rice i love my noodles um i love sauces um, obviously, I'm a big meat eater, so I like to have meat there. So, you know, meat and two veg and then a rice or, you know, your noodle dish. So, And I think that comes across, hopefully, in the books that are saying, well, look, this is food that you can cook, you know, very simply just in one pot or one wok. Yes. But it's also going to taste fantastic. There's going to be something that you can really get your teeth into. And, you know, you're going to have that flavor sensation. You're going to have all those different textures and, you know, you're going to feel great at the end of it. So... Well, and your new book, One Walk, One Pot, is a little different from your previous books in that you've chosen to focus on dishes here that require only one pot to make them, be that a wok or a saucepan or a rice cooker. But you've also expanded your range of recipes. You're including other Asian cuisines. You're including Japanese, Malaysian, Korean, Thai specialties. What led you in this direction? Well, you know, the the different types of food is something that we've always cooked within the restaurant and at home. Now, obviously, when I was like, you know, when I first wrote my my first couple of cookbooks, they very much wanted me to concentrate on the Chinese food that we were serving in the restaurants and um, really picking up on the heritage of who I am, because obviously I'm a British born Chinese. Uh, my, my dad's from Hong Kong, my mom's from a place called Southampton here in England. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, growing up, you know, my dad associated with a large East Asian community. So we had um, Malay, even though they weren't uncles, we had Malaysian uncles and he would do this fantastic Malaysian style curry for us. Mm. And then we had that, yeah, this little guy who's from Vietnam and he would do these Vietnamese dishes for us. So this is food that I remember eating growing up as a child. And this book allowed me that, you know, to sort of start sharing some of those recipes with the people that were buying the books. And, you know, so, you know, East Asian food, as we know, the Chinese have been around for a long time. And as they traded throughout the East Asia, through the old Silk Road, different things, you know, so the food is very similar. So obviously there are differences with Malaysia, we're, you know, we're using different um, aromats. And, you know, especially when we go to Thailand and we've got lemongrass and other bits and bars. But these things aren't, you know, aren't unknown to the Chinese people. Maybe sort of like, obviously not so easy to get hold of maybe in Hong Kong and China. But then, sort of like, you know, so when we started to, but as you are traveling and this book allows us to travel around East Asia and to try the food, you know, the similarity being yeah, it is East Asian, the right, you know, the main ingredients are going to be the same, whether that's a protein or a carbohydrate of rice or noodles. And then the flavors, yes, they do change ever so slightly, but you know instinctively when you're eating it, you're eating Asian food or eating Chinese related food. I am in the camp that believes almost anything that you take away from a Chinese restaurant is comfort food. I mean, in the recipes in your new book, 
push all of my comfort food buttons. And you talk in the book in the beginning about wanting to create a simpler way of cooking. And it certainly is that. Uh, the recipes are fairly easy and in one pot. But was comfort food a happy side effect? Or was that something you thought about as well? I think it just comes down to this love of food that I have. Now, for me, growing up in a British, you know, in a Chinese restaurant, being in Britain, our safe place was always with food. So when we had friends come over, we would cook. When we saw family, we would cook. When there was a birthday party, a christening party, there was food. If we'd come home after school and it hadn't been a particularly good day, my mum was cooking for us. You know, when we saw, when we sat down as a family we ate food together so food always you know for me it, it was all about comfort food and I think that comes across obviously in this book in a sense that I'm only showing you food that I really love to cook and eat now why spend this amount of time in a kitchen for cooking something that you don't really want if you're having a fantastic day you know great have a nice meal if you're having a rubbish day well you can eat the same kind of food and it will lift your mood so yeah I think it wasn't done on purpose, but I think it naturally just happened because I love food. And I think you can see that when you're reading the recipes. So, so your love of food comes through in every recipe. I want to talk about some recipes. You offer up a number of fried rice recipes in your book, and it is something we all love when we go out and when we order in. But fried rice is not something that's terribly easy to get right at home. Do you have any tips or tricks for home cooks when they dive into your fried rice recipes? 100% yes is the answer. Um, you've got to make sure that you've got a good non-stick pan. So don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people out there that want to cook authentic Chinese food using an authentic wok. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is with a carbon steel wok is, number one, it has to be well seasoned. So if you've only used it a couple of times, chances are that rice is going to stick. And the more you use that wok, the more of a patina it will, it will, you know, it will get, so it makes it non-stick. If, like many... You just want to cook this fried rice at home and you want less faff. So there's no mucking about. You just want a nice meal. Make sure you've got a good nonstick wok. It could be a good nonstick frying pan. Now, they say with nonstick, you don't need the heat. Now, I always make sure that my wok is always really hot. Mm -hmm. Once the wok is hot, you add your oil. Then you, you can add your eggs and you know get, get those mixed through. Then add the rice or the meats and vegetables. The trick is, is not to overcrowd that pan because as soon as that heat comes down in that pan, that's when you start stewing the rice again. And even with a good non-stick wok, okay, it might not stick, but it won't have that flavor. The trick is that we're trying to toast the rice or even slightly burn the rice. Now this technique is called wok hay or the breath of the wok. And that's what gives that rice that distinct fried flavor. So if you can do that and don't crowd the pan. So if you are cooking for three or four people, even maybe a family of six, just do your rice in stages. Maybe cook it and cook enough for two, cook, put that to one side, then do another portion. And at the very end, bring it all together and you'll still have that lovely fried rice taste. I think that's great advice and something that scares some people, the idea of cooking in batches. But it does give you the absolute best results. I agree with you. You cannot crowd that wok. There's another recipe that really caught my eye. And when I think of Chinese lemon chicken, I think of fried, crunchy chicken that's covered in a tangy sauce. But in your book, you offer up a one-pot version of lemon chicken that sounds just as delicious, 
but seems so incredibly easy. Tell me about the dish. <laughs> so, yes, I think we. I, when I think of lemon chicken, especially growing up in a Cantonese restaurant, you think of the chicken in the cornflour batter. It's really crispy. Mm. You've got this lemon sauce drizzled over the top of it. But then when we look back at how this dish may have been created, it would have been cooked in a clay pot. It would have been cooked just, you know, on an open fire because, you know, so I, I wanted to create the one that said, yes, I wanted to create this dish. I did some research and there were lemon chicken dishes out there where it's all cooked together. You know, you're getting the tanginess, you're getting the honey. So you're getting the sweetness, you're getting all of these flavors all locked into the chicken as it's cooking. So the only thing I guess we're missing is a little bit of texture because obviously we're not getting that because we're not frying the chicken. Mm -hmm. But as far as flavors go, we've got sweet, we've got sour, we've got tangy, we've got all of these flavors happening. And I guess, for if you really wanted to cheat and you want a little bit of crunch, you could maybe add some fried one-ton skins or something at the very end, and you've got all that you've got that crunchy, crunchy texture again. So just have a portion of those next to it as you're eating the dish, and you're going to have that very similar mouth sensation when you're eating like a regular Cantonese lemon chicken. Your version of this is so easy, as you say in the book, it almost seems to cook itself. Who doesn't yeah. want a dish that does that? And it's all about you know creating these dishes that we can go home, we can throw all these things into the pan in different stages so some of the recipes you have to fry the chicken off first and then you know and then you braise it afterwards you create a sauce but at, at that stage that's when you can leave it to blip away on the stove go and grab a shower if you just just don't want, and you can come back and you can have this fantastic meal without all of that washing up you've literally just got one pot to wash here in the u.s brisket is a cut of meat that so many americans think is best when smoked and in your book you offer up a very interesting and surprising brisket rendang. Is brisket a common cut in Southeast Asian cuisine? And what inspired you to take it and pair it with these over-the-top curry flavors? <laughs> so um, obviously the Asian people are very good at using nose-to-tail cooking. Right. So they use every single part of the animal. So, you know, don't be wrong. If it's a nice fillet, nice piece of fillet steak, it's going to, you know, a quick flash on the barbecue in the pan and it's done in a matter of mere minutes. When you've got something that needs that time, it needs the love to cook. Brisket is one of those, you know, it's a bit more fibrous. You know, when you smoke it, you smoke it for a long time. Therefore, when you when you you know when you're going to eat it, it literally falls apart. This rendang recipe is exactly the same. So obviously, okay, we're adding our East Asian flavors. You've got this lovely sauce that comes with it, and it's been cooked so slowly that when you do eat it, it falls apart in the mouth. But you've got that lemongrass. You've got all those East Asian sort of like, you know these flavors coming through, and it just it makes I think a a, a wonderful wonderful rendang curry. So. I want to talk about rice again for a second, because every rice recipe in your book, whether it's your Cantonese rice cooker chicken or your black bean and pork rib rice, which sounds to die for, you always call for rinsing and soaking rice. And this step makes a lot of cooks in the U.S. raise an eyebrow. Why? Is rinsing or soaking the rice important for success in these recipes? So in these particular recipes, what we want to try and do is wash away some of that starch. So rice is naturally starchy. So when you cook it, it becomes really sticky. Now that stickiness is quite nice. It means eating it with a pair of chopsticks is really easy because you can pick it up in a big clump. But we don't want it to a point of where it just clumps together and it's just like a mush. So therefore, if we wash the rice at least two or three times in lukewarm water and then tip away this water, we're going to get rid of some of that starch. Now, also as well, because we're cooking the rice with the stock, with the meat on top, 
we soak the rice first to make sure that we don't end up with bony pieces of rice because no one likes to you know put a mouth you know some rice into the mouth and then it's a little bit gritty inside mm. that's because it's not soaked it's not been cooked long enough or it's not had enough water mm. so we can obviously trick this by by obviously soaking the rice first and then when we cook the meat on top literally within 25 30 minutes we've got this fantastic dish and you mentioned about the cantonese one especially if you cook it in the clay pot you can burn the bottom of the rice a little bit because now you've got those textures we were talking about we're missing in the lemon chicken so we've got the soft rice and we've got the juicy chicken but now we've got the burnt rice on the mm. bottom which is like a rice crisp you know or a chip as you call it in the u.s yeah. and it's nice and crunchy that you're eating you're eating that with the dish and it just Again, it's just all those flavors, all of those textures, all, all in one pot. <laughs> so. To be able to get different textures in one pot is incredible. So, uh, bravo for being for creating <laughs> that for no. us. I'd like, I'd like to say that it was these are all of these are all original recipes. But yeah, this is all about heritage cooking. So, if you think about, I've got to think about where my generations have come from. You know, Chinese civilizations are what roughly four or five thousand years old. So these techniques have been perfected over centuries, over millennia. And all I've done is I've like, put my little twist on it here. So well, fabulous. So <laughs> you clearly love food and it's it's wonderful. Isn't it wonderful to have a career based on something that you oh, yeah. love so much? So when it's just you at home, what do you cook for the family? Again, I love rice. I love noodles. Um, so, you know, for me, a nice big bowl of noodles with a nice clear broth and maybe some wontons or some fish cake running through it is kind of like my comfort food it's the food that I remember eating not only in the restaurant growing up but also on the dinner table when my even now when we come over and have food with my mom and dad my dad will do like noodles for everybody mm -hmm. and it's one of those dishes we can all sit and eat together you know like and it, there's quite a lot of faff in a sense because when you're doing noodles for that many people because because the noodles have to be cooked fresh for each individual person you do tend to sit in sittings <laughs> so <laughs> the kids get served first and by the time you, the kids have eaten our dinner's ready but you can't beat that freshness that cleanness that sort of like you know and it, for us it's just you know it's it's our heritage it's it's you know the food that i know it's the food that my dad ate growing up because you know he, he lived in a little place called shuttlecock or tamshu hang in hong kong and his first job was in a one-ton noodle shop so these right. so we go back my dad's in his 70s now so he's now passing over 70 years later the dishes that he learned to cook in this little restaurant in hong kong so you can't beat that i don't think no it sounds absolutely amazing kwok Wan. Thank you for sharing your passion today with me, with your food. And thank you for this new book, One Walk, One Pot. It is such fabulous comfort food. Great good luck with it. And thanks for spending some time with me this morning. My absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for having me. So uh, this guy is clearly a big celebrity in uh, where he's from, right? Yeah, he is. He is and really well known. This guy is big on TV. It's so funny. And yet because, he's on our little podcast. And it's, it's not nice. his first book. And I love this book. And I even love the cover of it. It's it actually silly. It has like a little Dr. Seuss quality about the typeface and all. But the book is so full of delicious stuff. So before we get to the last segment, what's making us happy through this week, let me say that it would be great if you could subscribe to this podcast, if you could rate it on any platform that you're on, you can drop down and give it a rating, whether Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, in your home country, you can rate it there. And 
any country that you're in, there where you're listening to this podcast, including the United States, of course, you can write a review on Google Podcasts, on Apple Podcasts. You can't on Spotify, but on other platforms, you can write a review on Audible. You can write a review. If you would write a review, just nice podcast, that would do wonders for us since we are unsupported doing this just for the love of doing this. Okay, so moving on. What's making us happy in food this week? Salsa matcha. Oh. That is making me happy. So if you don't know what that is, it is a Mexican chili spice paste. Not unlike Chinese chili crisp, but it's Mexican. With many more nuts. And lots there's nuts in it. And lots of nuts. Mark just made a batch because we have a dinner party coming up where I'm doing a goat birria, and I'm doing refried beans, and I'm doing a deconstructed guacamole with a panna cotta, and I'm doing a tongue tacos and heart and interesting stuff. Mark made this great salsa matcha with pistachios and walnuts and pepitas and anchos and marita chipotles and chilies de arbol and lots oh, and lots of garlic and a little brown sugar and vinegar and you cook it very lightly. You make you cook it in oil and then you uh, puree it all. And it, it I there are a hundred thousand different ways to make salsa matcha. I basically took a recipe from the New York Times, a recipe from Rick Bayless, and a recipe from the Washington Post, and I kind of fused them up and made my own version. You did good. Um, it's it is super hot, but it it should be good for what the purpose of the dinner party. Are. I understand it's really great on scrambled eggs. It's mm. really great on fried eggs. I understand that it's really great to just put on top of rice. Um, we shall see what we do with salsa matcha and how we survive with it. Okay, so what's making me happy yeah, what's making in happy? food this week? I think that what's making me happy in food this week is medium grain brown rice. <laughs> I love brown rice and brown I brown sushi rice. I will confess that I am a fan of brown rice and medium grain like arborio rice, medium grain rice is just a delicious thing. It's it's nutty but it's chewy. I'm not as big a fan of brown long grain rice mm, as I, I am medium you. and short grain rice. I agree with you. On if that. There's something about the stickiness that helps mitigate the dryness of brown rice uh, somehow. But the flavor is so good. You have all that germ in there, just like you have yeah. with the Heiger rice we've talked yeah. about. Yeah. But you do get all the extra fiber and texture of the bran. Yep. And I will confess that I make it in a rice cooker. I love our rice cooker. It's easy to do. I know a lot of people are very resistant to rice cookers because, A, they don't need another uh, appliance. Yes, they and do. B, mm -hmm. they say, I make it perfect on the stove. Mm -hmm. I do, too. I know how to make brown rice on the stove. Thank you. I've been in this career a long time. I know how to make white rice on the stove. Thank you. I've been in this career a long time. I just rather make it in a rice cooker because it's so easy. I just push the button and walk away. I love my rice cooker. Yeah, I can't love it more. And it keeps it nice and hot. So I make it when I get up in the morning. If I'm going to have brown rice for lunch, I make it when I get up in the morning. And then it just sits there warming all day, you know, with the lid closed on the rice cooker. So I don't have to worry about it at all. It's ready when I'm ready for it. So I love it. It's a great thing. All right. That's our podcast this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. Again, newsletter, subscribe, rate, you know, the whole deal. Do all those things. And thank you for listening to this episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And download an episode next week and the week after and the week after that and go back there's a great backlist you can download episodes for the last three years so you can listen to cooking with bruce and mark all the time